You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete, where we look back on some of our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. Each week we'll be digging into the archives to look at some of the most memorable teams in both English and world football. We'll have the greats, the overachievers, the heroic near misses and the catastrophic failures to have graced the game over the last 30 years. So what are you waiting for? Turn your collar up like King Eric, grab your replica Mitre Ultimax, relive your youth and let's go with Four at the Back. Welcome back to Four at the Back. We're at episode nine, and this week we're talking about Blackpool and their sole entry into the Premier League in 2010 uh, to 2011. Uh, this is a story with with many facets. Where we feel there's the sort of the the obvious sort of fairy tale of a of a, a so-called smaller club making it to the Premier League. Uh, it's a proper underdog story. It ultimately ends in in heartbreak, but uh, there was a there's some moments along the way. But there's also a few subplots going on, uh, which we'll get into as, uh, as as this episode wears on. But first of all, just want to just get our sort of I suppose our abiding memories of that Blackpool team. We'll get that out of the way first. So what what do we remember of this of this season uh, from the Tangerines? Nothing. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Maz. All right, I'll speak to you all again a bit later. Bye. Cool. See you next week. Um, Arsenal next week, mate. Awesome. Great. Anyone else? With my, to be honest, my abiding memories are more the year before, watching them uh, oh, charging up oh, the sorry. the championship. I mean, uh, you <laughs> We were there with them. Um, yeah, that that season where they uh, made it into the playoffs and and they had everybody really buying into this whole attacking football, plucky little Brighton, uh, Ian Holloway story. And, and if you were watching the championship at the time, then you were rooting for them so hard when they actually managed to make it into the playoffs and came up. So th- that to me is probably a stronger memory than even them going to Anfield and winning, which is probably the highlight of their time in the Premier League. They beat Spurs as well that season. Um, I, I think uh, the opening day, um, they thump Wigan 4-0 on the opening day. And I, I always think, you know, when? Wigan were a, were a well-established um, Premier League club at that point. So that was quite a sort of... I don't think anyone expected them to kind of come in and do that on the opening day. So that was uh, that was really fun. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's a classic example of one of those teams that's full of journeymen. Um, and, you know, looking down the squad list, you know, um, obviously Charlie Adam would become the sort of the most high profile and probably have the best career. But, you know, you've got people like Craig Cathcart there who has had a very good career at Watford um, and Jason Punchin, who'd go on to be very good um, uh, in the sort of the Pardew um, Palace side. So, you know, you've got, you know, you've got some players there that... Um, 
that, that kind of use this success to kind of pivot onwards but then lots more who you know really just then went back to their existence as kind of journeyman EFL pros but it's a it's a great story to think that these guys actually did get some time in the limelight um because you know that that kind of um level of professional footballer you know that they'll maybe get a cup run where maybe their name will be heard from time to time but for them to make it to the Premier League and then not be replaced by expensive signings like I think about Fulham a couple of seasons ago where they had a you know not a side for the gentleman but a young sort of exciting side with lots of youth talent you know who then all all got benched for a load of crap foreign signings that took them straight back down Um, and teams like Blackpool don't do that you know they stick basically with the exact team that got them promoted um, and usually that's a recipe to go straight back down. But they made a good fist of the fight, and, and that's why people remember them, I think. Uh, there's an element of uh, empathy, I suppose, going on with a lot of this, because part of why it you have to stick with those players um, from a, an emotional point of view in order to have that connection that Blackpool did with the neutrals is people that... Basically, all fans fall into one or two camps. You either choose your team or your team is chosen for you. And then there's neutrals. But if you've got a team, you either choose them yourself or it's determined somehow. And if you if that applies to you, you look at teams like Blackpool who don't have a lot of success. You know, they, they were a big club decades ago. You know, the Matthews final and all that stuff. But by the time we saw them in uh, attached to attention under Simon Grayson, first of all, then Ian Holloway in the, in the championship, they'd been through the ringer a lot and if you support your local side or a family side where you didn't necessarily have a huge amount of say in it you sort of look at teams like that and think either either you recognize it because that's what your side's been through or you look at them and think they're but for the grace of god go i so you're really just thrilled for those kind of teams and those players to get that moment in the spotlight and then when you add the the fact that Keith Southern may have been a career Blackpool player who never really looked like going on to anything else, but they were, and Ian Everett might have been exactly the same, but when they were playing a lot of attack-minded, exciting football, you've got a really good general and specific appeal to a lot of people, I think. And they wouldn't have had that without those pros and the fans both getting their moment in the limelight. There's almost like a non-league feel to Blackpool in that, Every game they play this season, they're underdogs. No one truly believes they belong there, including Blackpool themselves. And Holloway sort of leans into this and keeps talking about them every away day as being a special day for the fans. So does the idea that this is all very temporary help foster this sort of cross-league support for Blackpool this season? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult um, to, to see it any other way, really, isn't it? Because... You know, they've got no budget whatsoever. Um, they've got a tiny ground. Um, you know, they play in these ridiculous orange shirts. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you you have to just kind of, um, if you're a fan of the club, you know, just see that season as, as a bonus, you know. And, and, and if you uh, manage to stick in the Premier League, um, then it's, it, it's, it's a miracle and maybe you can build from there. But you might as well have a go at it. And I really admire the fact that they had a go at it. They didn't, you know, put 10 men behind the ball every game. They they went out and played their football. Um, and yeah, they got battered sometimes. 
Um, you know, I think there's a six nil loss to Arsenal in there. Um, you know, there's a, a game where Louis Sahar scores four goals. Um, I guess, you know, to, to use a cliche, they did it that they pretty much did it their way. Um, and the fact that they came so close to actually surviving with that squad, you know, playing that cavalier brand of football um, is, is, is pretty remarkable, really. And, you know, I admire that much more than a team that comes up, plays very defensive football and still goes down by the same margin of points. You know, maybe it's the romantic in me, but I, I would much rather a team you know, plays uh, a load of thrillers and and goes down properly fighting than, you know, sticking 10 men behind the ball. And I, I think, you know, when people were talking about Norwich last season, you know, Norwich, like, play incredibly nice football to watch, um, you know, under Daniel Farker. And everyone said, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they parking the bus and, 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 and trying to play defensively. Um, it's so naive. Why are they doing that? And, you know, I think the response that the, that, that Norwich gave, you know, not only Farker, but also the board was that, um, you know, they didn't expect to come up this early. So what they were going to do is almost use it as a practice run, right? They were going to play their football in the Premier League. Um, they got a famous victory against, against Man City, for example. They won a lot of hearts. Uh, they've gone down with a parachute payment. They'll rebuild and they'll come back stronger. Um, and I just think that's so much better than, you know, having a forest of defenders behind the ball and, and, and not having a go at it. There's a lot of evidence out there that defensive football usually does end up winning out in the end. And that's unfortunate for those of us who like attacking football. But Blackpool did make a damn good fist of, of it, as you say. Um, very nearly stayed up if you... and. To be honest, it probably would have been the biggest surprise, the biggest achievement at the time. I mean, Oldham are maybe the only club of that kind of size to ever actually stay up. And that was in the very, very early days of the Premier League. Um, I, I think Bournemouth could maybe claim since to have done, uh, to, to be a club at that kind of level and done the same sort of thing. But um yeah, it's uh, at the time Blackpool was so up against it. The conventional wisdom says that they were would have been better off trying to keep it straight. But then with those with those players that you already have, and you've got a year's worth of playing good football, it would have been so disappointing if they had have pivoted away from that. And I don't think Ian Holloway was the the man to turn like that. Yeah, I mean, I've got to agree there. You know, I. I'm, I can't really remember this team, to be honest. It, it's coming at a time where I was mostly away from football. All I remember this season, I believe, is that horrible uh, League Cup final. Was it that year? Pete the, Birmingham get, the Birmingham yeah. game. I, th- I, think it, I think it was because they, the, Birmingham won that and then went down a couple of months later, I think. I, yeah. I, don't, think they got, they, I don't think they got to enjoy it for long. <laughs> no. <laughs> small, small mercies, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a time. In general, I, I, I do agree with that. You know, as much as I wanted to make a joke about, uh, about Neil being a Spurs fan, so obviously he'd rather, you know, He'd rather see see nice football than actually win anything. True. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. You know, but do you know what? If you're a team that plays grotty football, 
go up and play gritty football. I've got no problem with that whatsoever. If that's how you play, but yeah, you know, like you say, don't don't change your your way because you know the chances are if you start playing that that ten men behind the ball hoofing it upfield, there are there are teams that do it better than you're already there, and you're going to go down anyway. So yeah, just play the way you play, you know. And that is one thing I do, you know. I do have to give it up for that Blackpool team because you know that's what they did. And did you guys hear me now? Yes. Right, okay, that's better. Sorry, uh, carry on. Uh, but that, that's not to take away from um, teams like Burnley um, and teams like Stoke, who, um, and, well, I mean, maybe it's a bit harsh to describe Allardyce as Bolton that way, actually, because they could play a little bit too. Um, but that's not to take away from teams like that, because obviously the DNA of those managers and those teams was to was to play in that way. And, you know, to be honest, it was hilarious enough uh, how much Stoke lived inside Arsene Wenger's head that I'd happily have watched that mm-hmm. forever. But, like, I think, you know, what what Mazda said, that the team has got to be true to the team's identity. Um, and, and we've seen a couple of times where teams that were free-flowing in the Championship have then tried to tighten up in the Premier League, um, and it's not gone very well. Um, I don't know, Pete, what you think about about Villa last season, about whether actually they're the exceptions to that rule in the sense that, that, that obviously after lockdown, they suddenly really tightened up at the back and sort of just reeled off a bunch of results, um, you know, to stay up when previously they've been leaking goals. And then suddenly they they, they got a lot tighter and Dees have got a lot of credit for sort of, you know, working on that defence during the kind of lockdown period. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. I don't think we're a particularly attacking side, uh, to be honest. I think we, we play a lot of possession football, but um, it's not especially attacking. It's that, you know, you'll, you'll be familiar with the term passanaccio, um, <laughs> where you keep the possession primarily as a way of stopping you from being under too much pressure and stop the opposition scoring. Uh, we're looking to counterattack more than anything. That Liverpool game a couple of weeks ago is a great example of that because soak it up, play it, uh, quite quickly uh, to the front line, look to get in behind. I think the difference pre and post lockdown for us was a couple of key players coming back and you can't be a defensive team or a defensive minded team or a team that looks to avoid conceding in the Premier League with a weak defence. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's kind of, I suppose, what Blackpool might have done uh, had they tried to pivot. It's almost certainly what did for them in the end, because there's a couple of really key players for them in the championship that helped them play this way very well. Uh, Matt Jilts, the goalkeeper, who looks like breaking into the Scotland team for a little while until he gets this knee injury in the sometime in the winter. And Alex Baptiste, who kind of looked like a pound shot Rio Ferdinand at times in the way he would press up and squeeze space out from centre back and run through into the midfield and join in and all this stuff. And he also has quite bad injury problems. So he plays about half the games and um, Craig Cathcart never looks quite as good a fit in there as Baptiste did uh, the previous year in there with Ian Evert. So you wonder if. You know, maybe the strategy was right and they just didn't have quite the same personnel. Uh, that's certainly what ultimately came to our rescue in the end was guys like John McGinn and Tyrone Mings coming back. Maybe they didn't come back quickly enough for Blackpool. And, you know, they obviously, you know, they didn't have quite the the, the financial means that, that Villa did last season. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know how much this side cost, but if you add it up, I mean, peanuts. I'm not, 
I'm not even sure if this side would have cost about four million tops between 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 the whole lot. I mean, DJ Campbell was was the most expensive player, right? Uh, DJ Campbell and the French lad who was uh, fairly ineffective signing, they both cost about the same, about 1.7 million a piece, I think. Yeah, and DJ Campbell essentially, you know, the sort of the Aldi Ian Wright. Um, <laughs> he, he scores sort of, he scores like 13 goals, uh, 13 league goals, which from 31 games is, is, is not a bad return. But um, I don't know, it's kind of, there's only so long you can kind of trade off that idea of being, you know, the guy plucked out of non-league. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, especially considering we've now had Jamie Vardy. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, I think that puts it in perspective a little bit more. I think the I need... thing is, there's there's a lot of not great teams in the league that year. And actually there's, I mean, Blackpool, you could say they're unlucky to go down in the sense that they, they amassed 39 points. The only side to have gone down with more than that in the last 20 years are West Ham. Um, so they make a decent fist of it. And I think in the end, I mean, I think it's the last day of the season they eventually go down. So they were kind of, you could argue they were on the right track and, you know, had a, a one or two goals not gone in at some other point in the season. They, they just stayed up. That's the I mean, bane of attacking teams, though, isn't it? One or two mm. Yeah, you know, because so much of football, when it comes down to it, if you're an attacking team, is chance. Uh, because you are effectively trading off your uh, stuff going forward in exchange for being uh, the, the randomness of football at the back. Almost all football's strategy is about minimizing the weird stuff. And Blackpool were not trying to do that. They were trying to make the weird stuff happen at the other end. And you look at how many games they lose by one goal. That's exactly exactly right. But it's all part of the DNA. Uh, and it's, as you say, it would have looked wonderful if they'd won one extra game. That's well, all yeah, they, were, they were 2-1 up at Old Trafford <laughs> on the last day of the season. Um, and, and if they'd won that game, they would have stayed up. Uh, they also... Um, they also drew uh, one all with Spurs at the lane, and um, you know that was a 89th minute Jermaine Defoe penalty, which I think, from memory, was a bit of a dodgy pen. Um, so, you know, but the bizarrely as well, a game that might have done for them just as much in that run-in was they drew nil-nil with Stoke at home, um, which I guess you know, and a nil-nil scoreline is pretty normal for Stoke at that time, but was probably very abnormal for Blackpool. They must have been a bookie's nightmare that season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially I mean, as being a sentimental team, so many people would have backed them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a couple of other things to discuss here. And I guess this is where we sort of look at some of the other teams who've, who've made a sort of a similar foray. I mean, they're one of only four teams in the Premier League's history to have only had one season in the Premier League. Um, and they're by far and away the most successful of those teams. Do you know what the other teams were? Swindon, Barnsley, and oh, oh. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get the last one. It was Oldham, the same season as Swindon. I thought they had two. No, they had the one. Oh, uh, it was my... one was one old first division. That's why I didn't count. Ninety three, oh. ninety three, ninety four was their their only season. Um, I thought I thought they were in the first year as well, ninety two, ninety three. Oh, maybe I've got that wrong. Shaky on the facts. <laughs> we're going to check this now. Staying um, on brand. While while you check that, I wanted to cycle back quickly because I mean DJ Campbell's the top scorer, and we mentioned him a moment ago. Is this the only time he was ever remotely kind of significant, other than being the guy who played on telly in the FA Cup? 
Because uh, I remember him. I remember him being pretty ropey for both Birmingham and Leicester and having a bigger reputation than he ever delivered on. And didn't he have some, like, you know, scandal, a match-fixing scandal that basically, you know, completely kiboshed his career? He got a suspension for some sort of betting irregularity, I think, while he's playing at Blackburn. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was very much that sort of thing where he got... He got spotted playing uh, for a non-league side in the FA Cup, didn't he? Was it um, Yedding? Yes. Might have been against Newcastle. It might have been, actually. That sounds like something that we would do. And then isn't it Steve Bruce that takes a chance on him? Yes, Brighton? yes. It was It was definitely Birmingham. They were, they were shyer goals at the time. Uh, I think... Heskey was uh, a good target man, but they had no one to to really work off him uh, other than Clinton Morrison. And uh, the idea that DJ Campbell could come in and be a solution to that, I think, was possibly a slightly desperate move. I don't want to come across as being a bit biased when I say it, but I don't, it certainly didn't work out regardless. And, no, uh, and I, I think that, you know, you there are certain strikers that, that basically are always, you know... Teams will always pick them up thinking that maybe they'll score a few goals in the Premier League, but they never quite seem to manage it. Like Fraser Campbell's another one. You know, just those players that they're a little bit they're a little bit too good for the championship, but they're not good enough for the Premier League. You know, I can think of a few people like that. I would have said Patrick Bamford was one of them before this season. Cameron um, Jerome. Cameron Jerome's a classic example. <laughs> He's probably still making a living in the championships this day, isn't he? I'd just like to throw Robert Earnshaw into the mix for that. Yeah, very, yeah. very much so. Well, scored more for Wales than he did for his clubs, didn't he? Mm. Um, but yeah, those sorts of players, you know, um, they will always make a living either at playing for a championship, you know, promotion chasing club or playing for a bottom feeder Premier League club and never quite, you know, never quite sort of straddling that middle ground. And I think probably DJ Campbell is a... Is a, is a not bad example of that. I can, the, can confirm the, that Oldham were in the first season of the Premier League, so confirm shakiness on the facts. Yeah, there's just the three teams that have that have only had one season in the Premier League. I don't know if there's anything in that. I mean, it's 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 funny, isn't it? Because I mean, that Barnsley side were were not very good, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> but they, they never expected. And not with Swindon. Yeah, Swindon were were genuine. Swindon was an interesting one because they uh, were another team that that played very good football in the lower tiers. Um, Glenn, Hoddle Glenn Hoddle yeah. was their manager, their player manager. He reinvented himself as a sweeper at the end of his career. Um, and I always remember I watched the playoff final where Swindon came up. I guess I must have been it's been 12 or something um and obviously I, as a Spurs fan you know seeing Glenn have one last hurrah was was a, a brilliant story um and you know he he then got the Chelsea job um and and so sort of you know his assistant John Gorman uh, got the Swindon job and you know they just again Yanaga Fyotov decide they didn't really have the, the calibre of player to play that football in the Premier League and uh, and stay up and they were pretty much sort of done with by by Christmas. Um but yeah it was a it was a that was a nice little story while it lasted. Swindon's little sort of uh foray into uh into being a decent team. But again they got 
just like Blackpool was, you know, they had uh, a, a dose of the financial irregularities uh, and they got a fairly hefty punishment. I think they got, if I remember right, they got relegated a, a division um, as punishment. They've certainly been through the ringer in the intervening 20 years. Uh, I know that much about Swindon. The, the, the thing about Blackpool strikers, though, is DJ Campbell got the, the headlines because we tend to bias ourselves towards the person who puts the ball in the back of the net a lot of the time. And in many ways, the more important striker was uh, Gary Taylor Fletcher, who, who was never prolific, but was the man that made the rest, uh, the man that stirred the drink, as the old saying goes. I mean, the rest of the team worked around him a lot more. And I don't know if it was just the ability to to bring some of those midfield players into the game or or what, but uh, I, I was always a bit more surprised that he didn't get a more serious look and that DJ Campbell was always in and around the uh, the mix. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he looked a lot like the kind of bloke who would be up front for the five or well, for the Sunday league team. He had a definite look of a... He didn't look like a professional footballer at oh, all. Oh, yeah, he, he looked like a football player. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. But he was a, he was a very good hold-up player, wasn't he? Um, he mm. actually scored some of the most important goals as well. Um, I think he scored in that Liverpool win. Um, and, you know, I think... I think we need to talk about Charlie Adam as well because he was genuinely brilliant um, in this season. I know that maybe to some people, Charlie Adam's become a bit of a meme. Um because, uh, you know, he obviously got a move to Liverpool um, off the back of this season, which, you know, uh, both Stephen Gerrard and Jamie Carragher have been rather unkind about um, publicly on, on quite a lot of occasions um, mm. because they didn't see him as being a, you know, the profile of player that, that, that Liverpool should, should, should ever be signing. But he was genuinely a very, very good midfield player, um, had an absolute rocket uh, of a shot you know distributed the ball brilliantly he was a, a great long passer um and sometimes a player is just in the right team for his skill set and and you know Blackpool basically they built themselves around his um playmaking abilities and his ability to shoot from distance and you know he's he was not quick didn't have a great touch but he could pass and shoot he could stand he could stand there and he could pass and shoot and you know, he did both of those things brilliantly. And I think it's a little bit like where we discussed um, Danny Drinkwater in the Leicester episode. He's not a player that necessarily translates to every system, but he translated to their system. Uh, mm. And, and you know, he, he wasn't successful at, at Liverpool, though he, he wasn't anywhere near as bad as people think he was, actually. Um, but then again, and then he was very good, um, very good to st- for Stoke for a for a bit before having a very public falling out at the end of that time. And I found out this week, just randomly from watching like Soccer Saturday, that uh, he's now playing for Dundee, mm. um, which I had no idea about. But uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much the hero of that season for them. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, it's really common to reduce the side to Ian Holloway and Charlie Adam. Uh, so I wanted to get some mentions of uh, Ian Everett and Matt Jiltz and uh, Keith Southern and Gary Taylor Fletcher in before we we kind of pivoted round to Charlie Adam. But now we're there. It is worth pointing out that he was the most important player in that side. You know, he would pick the ball up from from the edge of the centre backs. He would go and uh, kind of operate around the edge of the box. He could put in a dead ball, uh, as you say, he could pass and he could shoot. Um, and at the end of that season, when it was starting to look likely that Blackpool would go down and that Liverpool would be coming in for him, 
the other team in the mix was was us and i would have been thrilled to get him uh, and and he never really got a, a fair shake uh, shake at liverpool and i think he said subsequently that he should have stayed longer and tried to fight for the place so that's the other thing to factor in he was bought into a liverpool side that was already failing to some degree yeah, was un- was undergoing so. a, uh, undergoing a lot of problems and maybe he should have stuck it out and said you know what i'm actually about as good as you can get at the moment. Maybe it wouldn't have survived the change of ownership and the and the new money that came in and the, all the other players that come in. But on the other hand, you never know because once you've made the decision, you can't rewrite things. But uh, all I know is I I would have been you know thrilled to death to have got him, and I don't think we would have had the the turmoil of the Alex McLeish season if we'd had a presence in the midfield like Charlie Adam. And you know, I think sometimes you know uh, top six sides can be very sniffy. Uh, about signing, you know, releg- uh, you know, players from relegated sides, um, and you know, uh, Liverpool We're fans, are, you know, but Liverpool fans are some of the most entitled uh, th- that there are, aren't they? I mean, you know, I- I'm, I'm sure there are lots of Liverpool fans that are completely sane and rational, but they also have a lot of fans that are, you know, completely mad. Um, and uh, you know, well, this the, the, this was the season after they. They spunked 35 million quid on Andy Carroll, um, and I, I suppose once once you've got you've gotten used to to someone like Fernando Torres banging them in, to have that replaced by Andy Carroll and Charlie Adam is, yeah, it's a bit of a step down, isn't it? How did they survive that? God, how are they champions now? That should have put them back like three decades. Oh, it was it was a long <laughs> it was a long process when you think about it. Cause well, yeah. when, when when Rogers comes in. You know, he's basically starting from from almost nothing. Like he he takes Joel uh, Joel and with him from um, from Swansea, and he um, you know he takes a little bit of a risk on, on on Daniel Sturridge, and he promotes Raheem Sterling from the youth team, and he um, you know he also he, signs Suarez on that that deadline day. I mean, the, 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 that deadline uh, day is, is remembered for for Andy Carroll, but. Luis Suarez was signed on the same day. Absolutely. Um, and I was about to say, a half much bigger price. signing. Half the price. Uh, it was about 26 million quid, I think. <laughs> Which is hilarious, it, isn't it? Was it that yeah. much? I thought, it, I thought it was about half. That was always the, the punchline. But, um, I think it was but, half know, as much as Torres. Ah, uh, could be it. But he did, you know, he, he, he also um, put John Joe Shelby uh, in, in the team as well. So sort of Brendan was, was kind of building around you know, a few um, building blocks, which which the Liverpool side of today might 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 seem a little bit odd. But it, it, it's like, you know, I think we've talked about this before. You, know, you build a side, you, you, you have to kind of start with some pieces that eventually you're going to replace. And for Klopp, like that was Lalana, for example, like very important to Klopp's early Liverpool sides. And obviously, eventually kind of, um, you know, is kind of, it's, it's almost like a process of natural wastage and he kind of ends up getting replaced, but doesn't, doesn't diminish how important he was to the growth of that team at that time. Um, but that's just a, a, a random aside really. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, this Blackpool side is certainly of those teams that only had the single season you know, the, by, by far the best team. You think about that, that, that Barzi team with like, you know, Neil Redfern up front and stuff. Um, mm. you know, just just dreadful stuff to watch. I swear, Neil Redfern played for every like rough northern promoted club for like 
about 10 I, years in a row. I think he got relegated every single year. <laughs> Comes up, scores exactly seven goals and goes back down again. <laughs> I mean, I guess that this the fact that they've never been back since is it plays into this idea they never expected to stay up. Like, I think they, they've there was definitely a case of imposter syndrome. Is it is it worth sort of going into the, like the ownership side of things? Because I think that you you asked like how much was their team worth, and the answer is about twenty three million quid less than it should have been, because apparently uh, this season uh, there are a lot of debts paid off um, to the Oyston's other interests outside of football using the Premier League money, and the fans have never. I suppose I've never forgiven uh, the family for for what for how that opportunity was squandered because of um, the Oyston's uh, sort of extracurricular interests. I, I suppose it's quite an interesting story. The sort of the, the Blackpool ownership thing as well. The uh, so Owen Oyston was the was the chairman up until 1996, whereupon he was uh, he was convicted of rape and indecent assault. Sounds like a lovely bloke. Um, in the six years that he was in jail, um, the control was handed over to first his wife and then his son, Carl, who remained the chairman up until about 2018. The stadium was meant to be redeveloped in the early 2000s and they demolished the South Stand in 2003. It didn't get rebuilt for seven years um, until the uh, the team returned to the Premier League. There's just a whole load of things that you just think, well, how how would they get away? We've, we've talked about Peter Ridsdale and we've talked about Mike Ashley, to some extent, they are not on the same level um, as the Oyston family, based on what on what, uh, what I've been reading over the last couple of weeks. Do you guys have any kind of recollections of, of any of that? Were, were, was there any kind of inkling of that whilst they were in the Premier League? Not at the time, as I recall. A year or two after that, you start to hear a lot more about it. And I remember the, the protests start, starting in earnest around 2014, I want to say. Um, I think having Ian Holloway as the face of the club for so long and him having that weird cult of personality up there went a long way to keeping people on side. And once he was gone, the relationship with the board started to become clearer. And I don't think it's ever cleared up since. Um, It's certainly the most ongoing, tempestuous relationship I can think of. Well, it it has now ended. It should be pointed out. It 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 actually ended... um... I think it was either this summer or last summer, they, they kind of, um, so they went into receivership um, in uh, last February, whereupon they they basically removed Owen Oyston as chairman. He was, um, and that now I think that the club has now been sold. So then they're no longer in that um, there. But I mean, for 23 seasons, they've been owned by the, by the Oyston family. And it's like, it, I mean, I suppose this idea of them be, of having this sort of um, appearance of a non-league side is backed up by the fact that in 2009, Ian Holloway basically refused to, to to have the team train at the training ground because of how terrible it was. In fact, at one point, he had them training on the beach instead of at the, uh, at the training ground. Uh, there's no hot water. Um, it's just a couple of porter cabins rather than tra- changing rooms. Um and the chairman basically promises to build a new training ground and it never happens. 
Do you know, I don't think all this is as, as non-league as you might think. It, it actually sounds fairly typical of a lot of clubs in League 1 and 2. Well, it, well, it probably just, is. Just because that's that, how mismanaged a lot of these clubs are in, in practice. Uh, and there are so many of these dodgy... Not to that degree, I grant you, but so many um, dodgy chairmen who are local businessmen who just like owning a football club. Um, they, they are figures that still operate in those lower leagues. And often you get these little scandals that bubble up. And granted, the Oysters is a, not a little scandal. It's a, it's a blight on the game. Um, as, uh, the main kind of claim that uh, it, with regards to funneling money away from their own, from the football to their own businesses is, is asset stripping. And it's everybody's fear when you're taken over nowadays is because the people that could be the saviors who thrust you into a new level of competitiveness could just as easily be the people who make you the next Coventry City. And you never know until they're in there and then it's too late. Yeah, there's, there's various, there's various um, types of bad owners, aren't there, really, when you think about it. I mean, you know, you've got the sort of, um, you know, the genuinely uh, rich people that basically just lose interest. I think Charlton's a, a very good example of that recently. Um, you know, Forrest is an example of just a guy that's just a megalomaniac and just makes continually baffling decisions you know you've got the the, yeah your kind of local pie factory owner type uh club chairman who again you know could get involved in all sorts of of, of dodgy bungs and bribery and asset stripping all the rest of it um and, and then you've got your kind of your you know your big businessmen from overseas that wanna you know change your kit and change your badge and change Vincent your name Tan. exactly mm-hmm. and the whole yeah. city was was very similar they wanted to change their name to whole tigers didn't they um yeah yeah uh oh, so God, yeah. yeah so the the cardiff the cardiff one was particularly egregious because you know you know sort of changing the nickname from the bluebirds and making them wear red instead of blue and stuff like that i think that was during the Solskjaer season actually um yep. And, you know, and that was a that was a particularly terrible case of that, because I think, you know, it's one thing to, to see you have a bad chairman that doesn't invest in the club, but to have a chairman that invests in the club for the expense of the identity that your team has had for over 100 years, I think is even worse, actually. I think, you know, every time you get one of these, you know, inverted commas, modernizations of a of a club, it it's something which is always or just always feels terrible and at least mm. with with blackpool you know they've retained the orange colors and the you know and, and the history even amongst the kind of financial problems that they've had you know at least they've retained the sense of what the club is mm. it reminds me of when they try uh the suggestion i think they may have even done it joe you you'll know better than me when the sports direct arena stuff you know that kind of erasure of oh, the <laughs> of the history i mean that's the closest mike ashley comes to this kind of level i suppose because the rest of the time is just normal incompetence right and then that's well <laughs> yeah I, I think i mean the, the whole thing's reared its ugly head again recently with um uh, i mean ashley generally only deals with companies he has a stake in so um you know basically we've only ever been supplied by um brands that uh that sports direct stock and all the advertising hoardings around st james's park are ashley businesses and this week we've had a new kit supplier announced and um 
it's uh, Castor who, um, who sponsor Andy Murray, but they also officially uh, sponsor Rangers. Um, and that thing was that that was all meant to have, uh, have stopped. And there's, there's a lot of Rangers fans who are very unhappy with it because it, it, they see it as proof that Ashley's actually still involved in in their club. Um, I mean, Ashley is the, the thing is with Ashley is that he's a successful businessman. Um, and, you know, however much money he, he's taken out of Newcastle, he's run it as a business and he's never made any apology for running it as a business. The Oystons tried basically tried to pretend they were running a football club um, and they traded on the fact that they, you know, they were um, they were a football club kind of, um, I suppose, a family owned football club that um, had uh, are living the dream in the Premier League. And behind the scenes, they're they're paying off the debts. They um Owen Oyston gets paid eleven million pounds as a as a director's salary that season, which is more than any other director in the league um, that season. Meanwhile, Ian Holloway gets no money to spend in January, and when you look at uh, Blackpool's results, they just they go off a cliff in January. And well, and this is sorry, go on. And and you can't imagine, you know, you think, well, surely they thought that some investment was coming in. And as soon as they realised the investment wasn't coming in, kind of the belief that they could actually do this was was gone. And so it came to pass because, you know, they, they were mid-table at, at Christmas. And, and that investment really didn't come at all. And, and it never that, came. It uh, never came. And they, and they needed it at that point. Um I was looking because you obviously got one eye on the Darren Ferguson and uh, every week. <laughs> and the whole point about the Darren Ferguson isn't that it was a bad player. Because as far as I know, Darren Ferguson never let Man United down, never did anything particularly wrong. It was just weird that he could have won a medal before the likes of a Brian Robson. That, that was the original kind of thinking behind that. The trouble with this Blackpool side is that the people that are weird, that stand out in that kind of, oh, that's strange, uh, uh, we'd see them they're all quite bad at least for blackpool because they are these weird guys that they bring in in january because there's no money so they have to get anyone they can get in on a free and i think the obvious contenders are, are james Beatty, a broken down five-year past it james Beatty coming in to try and fire you to safety or and this will get mad because i mean neil will remember spurs i mean Andy Reid comes in and plays about five games. This is in 2011. Isn't he massive? <laughs> isn't it? He must have been by this point because he wasn't exactly <laughs> slim at Tottenham. <laughs> no, and you, you, you know, you got lots of, um, I mean, Jason Yule. I mean, I had completely forgotten that Jason Yule was still playing football in, you know, in 2010-11. Seems completely, completely mad to me. I just, what was, what happened in those ten years between him playing for Wimbledon and him playing for Blackpool? I mean, it's, it's, good, it's, spell, it's good spell at Charlton, if I remember right. That's right. Uh, good, yeah. good kind of utility forward for them, but that's all I remember. But, but even never you know, scored any goals. I mean, like Brett Ormerod, obviously, is like a, you know, an, an absolute hero at, at Blackpool, and it's kind of cool that he. He kind of, after all those years playing in the lower leagues, um, that, that he actually got a game for them um, in the Premier League. But again, I, I, you know, I had no idea that he was still <laughs> that he was still kind of, you know, knocking around at that point in time. 
Um, scored the scored the goal in the playoff final that took them up, of course, Brett Ormerod. Yeah, so I mean, so a cult hero for that alone. Two two spells for them as well. Like uh, you know, pretty much um, began his career there. Um, it's where he kind of made his name, and then bounces around various clubs in the second and third tiers, and then you know, Bruce, back, to, back to Blackpool. It was is the highlight between that? Well, before this year, I suppose uh, the highlight probably that weird little spell he had at Southampton. Yeah, because they they kind of took a took a chance on him, didn't they? Did it really pay off? I don't I don't remember much good of it, but and he's got thirteen goals in ninety eight appearances. So it's not not brilliant. No, <laughs> I guess they were thinking at the time. I mean, you know, you think about the success that um, you know that that Bolton had grabbing you know grabbing Kevin Davis and and stuff like that. So you know you can find a striker in the in, in the lower leagues that will do a job for you. It just depends. It's a bit, it's a bit like you know. It's potluck, isn't it? It might work out, it might not. Yeah. The other striker that they had at the time is uh, is Marlon Harewood, who just uh, he'd just been on loan at Newcastle he from crushed, from Villa. Yeah, yeah. and uh, wasn't Holy re-signed. He, well, he wasn't brilliant for the Villa, which is why we didn't re-sign him. Uh, he, he he was a good super sub for us, is the best you could say. Uh, they took a chance and he actually had a decent kind of goal return. Uh, five goals at 16 starts and a team that gets relegated is not bad. But again, I think it's it's not the sort of player that's going to to, to fire you to safety, is it? That's the trouble. I, mean, I, th- I think that the, the, the point is, is that this is a team that is bereft of any faith that, they're, that, that, that the board is going to back them. So it doesn't really matter what they do. Um, and Holloway doesn't believe it either. Um, I mean, I suppose you know that they, they, in the end, they they suffer the heartbreak of of relegation. I think you, you think at some point a team's a team's going to win. They played that well the first half of the season. They they've got to pick up some wins at some point, and they just don't. And they just keep losing, and they keep conceding after going ahead, and they just can't get anything together. Yeah, one of the only games they win in that second half of the season is the one you already mentioned uh, against Tottenham, uh, which was a, a rescheduled game. And I think other than that, they win maybe one other game in the second half of the season. I they, mean, they, they got... basically, they, they do the double over Liverpool. So they they beat Liverpool in January. And then I think after that, yeah, they only, they only win. They only beat Spurs. Mm. There's a good and... run of draws in there, but they don't win a lot after the halfway mark. Yeah, it's just it's just not quite enough. And again, thirty nine points in any other season would have been enough. But mm. it's just there's there's a lot of there's a lot of teams beating beating teams. Right? I mean, it doesn't help that you know Newcastle have come up and they're because they are they're a, they're a team that is unlikely to be flirting with relegation. I think we we we're kind of fairly safe all season. There's a lot of teams who who feel like they're going to be in the mix, and everyone's beating each other. Um, and ultimately, it's you know, and it's often the way the team that plays worst after Christmas often ends up going down. So, uh, yeah, it was a shame. Yeah, it's. it's uh, I'm yeah, glad it wasn't us. I mean, uh, like like we said though, it's it's like. I'm not sure if it's like the heartbreak of relegation in the sense that they didn't really expect to stay up in the first place. And the fact they, no. the fact they even made it to the last day is, 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 is pretty remarkable given, you know, 
the players they had and the amount that had been spent. Um, I think it'd be a little bit different if it was. I mean, I, I mean, I might be wrong on this. This might just be my hazy recollection. But the the Phil Brown Hull team, I would think, would be much more disappointed because they were cruising at one point and then they just had a complete meltdown. Um, you know, so that one feels to me like a bit more of a bit more of a missed opportunity than this. I would say. I mean, if there's something heartbreaking about this, it's that it is the worst day to go down. You, you'd rather it was over a week or two beforehand if you're going to go down. You, you only want to still be in it on the last day if you stay up, I think. Which I think is is what happened. I mean, the other teams that we've discussed, like uh, Barnsley and Swindon and Oldham, they they, they were long gone. And, um, you know, I, I, suppose, I mean, you think what happened to Bournemouth last season. Obviously, Villa were in that kind of three-way fight on the last day of the season. I yep. mean, if, and you could. I mean, I remember watching sort of the the, the Bournemouth players at the end of the game, and it was it, it, it absolutely. Even though they played terribly for most of the year, you still kind of feel for them. Um, it's the Juninho for Middlesbrough crying on the pitch, you know, after mm. he's he's got them to two cup finals, both of which they lose, uh, and um, and then they go down the last day of the season as well. I mean. And after he'd played his heart out for them, like it's that sort of that's like you know the enduring image, isn't it, of that sort of last day of the season, um, you know, going down. That okay, I've got two images of the last day of the season going down. That's one, and then the other one is the comical uh, Niall Quinn in his suit running out of the dressing room. Oh, uh, God. because <laughs> because City were holding the ball in the corner when they were going down. Yeah. Someone had done the maths wrong. <laughs> like, well, honestly, <laughs> the reason, one of the best things I've ever seen. I'll never forget yeah. it. Was it Alan Ball's team? And he just sort of, what? <laughs> we're going down. <laughs> yeah, Qu- Quinn in his full suit, shouting oh. them to not hold it in the corner. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Too late by the time they realised. <laughs> What's happened? To- thinking, Sorry, this, is the, this is the year that uh, they are... Ultimately, uh, one of Me- Wigan's many late escapes is uh, is with the, one, the reason they ultimately go down. Is, uh, as Blackpool fall off a cliff in the second half, Wigan come roaring back and uh, win four or five games in the in the the run in and win the last two to um, step comfortably in the end. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the problems with teams that come up sometimes. Maybe if they're only three, it's not so frequent as I think it is. But having been there and done it for a year can give you that little bit of extra know how to get out of these situations i mean wigan were great at it weren't they uh, and played you know again though wigan were a team that played good football you know they weren't you know they weren't one of these teams that lumped it around you know especially under martinez they they, they played very good football so it, it shows that you can you know you can survive um sticking to your principles um i mean again like i mean maybe wigan is a is a, is a another one we can do at some point um because obviously they've, you know, particularly since 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 Dave Wooden died, they've 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 sort of struggled um, back down there in the AFL as well. I suppose the one other player Dave that, Whelan's that was not good, dead. is he not? Sorry, <laughs> no. he was. Oh, okay, my bad. That's definitely shaking the facts. I suppose the, the the one other player that was quite essential to this side that we haven't mentioned is. Um, is David Vaughan and the Welsh international. And he's the only one other than Charlie Adam who leaves 
uh, gets another Premier League club immediately on relegation, I think. That might be another shaky on the facts thing, but I think it's right. He goes to Sunderland. Uh, but he was a really important player too and, and slightly unheralded in the side because everybody focused on, on Adam. But um, I think David Bourne probably deserves a little name did, check here. Did they have, did Matty Phillips play for them that season? Yes. Because he, he went on to, I think, um, he, he, he QPR. one of those players who he, he often looked dangerous in, in crap teams. Yes, yeah. He, he's too good to uh, for the, for some, for, to be a mid-range championship side. He's a, a dangerous player in the top of the championship, bottom of the Premier League side. He's not really good enough to go much beyond that. Um, but yeah, he, he moved on to QPR when they were still a championship side and then moved up to the Premier League with them and has been a pretty consistent West Brom player since. I mean, I suppose as we as we look to sort of wrap this one up, uh, gents, I think I, I, I did some reading around what happened to Blackpool since because I was curious about the idea that, you know, there's there's not many teams that have that have come up to the Premier League and then not been there or thereabouts ever since. And, you know, there were the, you know, Swindon very early on would never really benefited from the, the sheer amount of money that would have been involved by the, by sort of 2010. And I suppose Barnsley to the extent the same, there's a lot of money that comes into the team, into the club at this point and nothing comes of it. And they almost seem to kind of, for the next couple of seasons, they're almost kind of fooling players and managers to come in and manage them on the on the the idea that they used to be a Premier League team. So there must be some some money floating about. I mean, you think um, Paul Ince goes and manages them for a little bit, um, and that ends when he ends up uh, in a fight with a with a fan. At one point, the the chairman ends up suing um, a man for for comments he makes on Facebook. Um, a man who's got 30 friends on Facebook and they sue him for for, um, for libel about something he said on uh, on Facebook. And, and I think they actually win. There's so many stories about the, what the owners have done to the club and gradually they've just become more and more of a, you know, I suppose a laughing stock in, in many circles. Um, I think they ended up in, I think they ended up in League Two at some point and they're just sort of clawing their way back up. That's right. Yeah, they they did spend a season in uh, having fallen that far. I think the money thing could be slightly overblown if you only spend one year in the top flight. Even if you don't overspend, like like Blackpool, who spent nothing, as as you've done a good job of uh, pointing out why it was never made available to them. Uh, Blackpool, there's obviously a lot of TV money coming in, but this is also the era where foreign investment starts spreading, not just through the Premier League, but into the Championship as well. So you've got a lot of uh, billionaire owners coming into the game during this time, and Blackpool still has a ground that is a capacity of about 16,000, so the match day mm. revenue isn't massive either. They are really and truly speaking still a side whose best days are behind them, uh, and until the infrastructure at the club switches up or they get a sugar daddy, that ain't likely to change anytime soon. So Yes, they they could have had, you know, a more responsible owner would have set them up better as a result of that Premier League money. But I don't think it's quite as clear cut as they should have done so much better coming out of it. They, they would have probably been like so many other uh, sides that drop out 
some teeth in trouble going back to that leap, albeit for different reasons. It's because to them, it's more a reversion to the mean. It's more falling back to where you expect them rather than the Coventry's and the leads of overspending to try and get back somewhere and having it go wrong. And that, that's my gut feeling anyway. So really, they're sort of the opposite of, you know, a Leeds or a Forest or, um, you know, I say through gritted teeth, a Sunderland, who, um, besides with big stadiums, who probably belong in the upper echelons of the game. Yeah. Blackpool are really a League One side who had a couple of really good seasons. Um, yeah. I mean, it's quite it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because as we saw, said at the start, you know, um, they were a, a genuine power um in the early the early 50s you know with uh with Matthews and Mortensen you know two of England's greatest ever players um and indeed in the uh, uh the famous um game at Wembley where uh Hungary whip England 6-3 the five Blackpool players start for England in in that game um and you know it was a point that occurred to me earlier on was just that um you know the first um 50 years or so of of of, of organized league football in in england you know it was very much a northern game i mean the you know the 12 um founder members of the of the football league um you know i think the 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 southernmost side is probably like wolves (laughs) so it's like you know it was very much a northern game until sort of Mm -hmm. you know the london clubs um got a bit more power in the in the 1920s like sort of spearheaded by arsenal so um it's it's an interesting idea that this idea that the game was really kind of um born in the you know in the north and 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 as sort of uh you know that sort of power struggle between london and the sort of and the big northern clubs has kind of has kind of gone on and some of those northern clubs have, have kind of slipped away in the way that burnley and and Blackpool and, and Bolton um, all have. And then it's quite interesting when you get the Boltons and the Burnleys come back into the Premier League and be relatively successful because it's a reminder that they were once great powers within the game. It is interesting that the only the only real southern city that is a proper dyed-in-the-wall football city in many ways is, is London. And Southampton and Portsmouth are some places that might argue with that. But London is... is really head and shoulders above everything else whereas there isn't a there there are well there are very few northern cities that don't have a football team that has quite a pronounced history in the english game even if it's just you know we won the fa cup once in the in the 20s you know the the buries of the world have that distinction the there's there's more um history in some of these small towns in Lancashire than there is in entire counties in the south of England yeah. for this very reason that you're outlining you know it is a northern game it's a professional amateur split that sends us off in this direction and we can go into that for, for days I suspect but that's really quite interesting the only towns that don't have that are the ones that play rugby league and everywhere else up north has some sort of story like that and it really is that you know it's it's Villa that form the league and when we send out those phone calls we send them out to clubs in the north uh, Lancashire in particular. So that's why you get this West Midlands Lancashire kind of look to these early football leagues and why Villa and Sunderland and Everton go on to be the biggest clubs for the next 20 years. Um, and it's, it's interesting as well that, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of uh, when we talk about owners and money, you know, it was the fact that that, that Arsenal had a rich owner, um, 
you know, who move them to Islington and stuff that, that basically uh, allows them to, you know, to kind of become um, that new kind of big power from the South. It's all, it's those kind of early years of the game are just really, really fascinating in lots and lots of ways, but um, we are very much on a tangent now. Yeah. I mean, there's a, one, one more tangent to throw in before we go back to anything sensible. It's interesting that the Blackpool football team's fortunes fade at almost exactly the same time that the city, the town of Blackpool's fortunes fade. You know, you think about it as this icon of British kind of culture in the 1950s and early 1960s. And once you get into the late 60s, 1970s package holidays, Blackpool's always looked a little bit different since. And so is the football team. And I don't I don't know if there's some connection there. Um, maybe it's less attractive for players to go to than it was. Uh, less attractive for people to live there. Less fans in the games. Whatever. But it's it's an interesting uh, correlation, if not causation, perhaps. But interesting. We've talked very little, um, or less than I expected, about Ian Holloway. Um and uh, Holloway's a, a bloke who's sort of he's sort of been in and around the Premier League a few times, but I think he's done most of his best work in the Championship. Uh, I mean, these days he's um, I, I presume he's sort of meandering towards the end of his managerial career. He's uh, he's the sort of he's a manager slash director at Grimsby Town um, in League Two, and I, well, you get the impression it's probably he's probably just winding down these days. What what are recollections of of Holloway as a manager and um, as uh, as somebody who was kind of making his making his first impact really in the in the in the Premier League? I think he'd been at Leicester before, hadn't he? To not great effect. I mean, I'll let Neil go first, and maybe Maz if he wants to win. I remember arguing with Maz um, at the time uh, vociferously about the merits or lack thereof of, of Ian Holloway, and I've turned around on it maybe not a complete 180 but anyway i'll let other people have their say first then i'll jump in i think the first thing to say is is that he was a good player <laughs> i think it's probably like people kind of forget that but um you know he made a lot of appearances for for qpr um you know um some of them in i think Q, were qpr in the premier league for all of those all of those years i can't remember yeah like, yeah, sort of the the first years, yeah. Yeah, so so you know he he made a lot of appearances in the in the Premier League himself, and obviously spent a lot of time at, at his hometown um, club of Bristol Rovers as well. Um, he made a lot yeah. of appearances in my doubles uh, when I got stickers as well. For some reason, I still I think that might be the root <laughs> of my hatred of him. But you know, I think he was. I think the thing with Ian Holloway is, is, is I think we were saying this earlier on when we were discussing that what we we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, I think he is a um, a manager that uh, has done some very very good work um, in the EFL um, and just is at his best motivating players that are not at the top top level. I think probably that would be my um, my take on him. I, I think you know the job he did at Palace was in a way as impressive as what he did at Blackpool because again he took over a palace side that didn't look like they had a, a prayer of going up and and he got them up and um it, it's funny because when they actually got to the Premier League it, it felt like his heart wasn't in it from the first game because I remember they played they played Spurs on the first day of the season palace that year 
um, and we got a dodgy pen um, and, and won the game on a dodgy pen. And he got interviewed afterwards the game and he said, um, I'm going to struggle with the referees in this division. And I thought then, mm, you're not really into this. And sure enough, he was kind of gone by Christmas and they brought in Big Sam to, uh, you know, hmm. to, to keep him up. It, you know, Big Sam got his fire hose out and, uh, uh, and kept them up. But, you know, I think he is a, is a manager who, um, as we said about this Blackpool era, plays a, a, a very open and attractive um, brand of football. I think it's just unfortunate that that his sort of, as as happens a lot of managers, you know, his personality has kind of obscured the good work that he's done. And as he kind of becomes more and more ridiculous as a kind of, you know, rent a gob on various Sky Sports programmes, you, you kind of, I, I think it's easy to understand why people don't really rate him. Um but he certainly did some good work in, in, in some of the places where he was. I suppose it is difficult to take him seriously with some of the things he said, but I guess that sort of that that takes away from actually the fact he he's got a pretty good record in the in the championship. Or he did he did well at Plymouth. Um, well, this is what I was gonna start to talk about. Um because I think how you saw him at the time maybe is different depending on if you were watching the championship going in. Because, as I said, this is a point where I was... Like, I'm, I barely watch any football now compared with how much I watched then. Uh, and, you know, the amount of football I watch has gone up massively during lockdown. Um, but back then I was watching everything I kept my hands on. And um, so the championship was the most entertaining league around. And Ian Holloway had this great reputation as a, a decent championship manager no video game copyright into it but um Plymouth was one of those things we looked at and I think when I look back on it in hindsight now I wonder how much of that was not not wrong exactly but it seemed like we were almost writing off everything that had missed gone wrong in his career like there was always some excuse for it and we were there was a making allowance for things that maybe hadn't worked out and just looking at what was good. And I think what's happened since Blackpool is the record has shaken out to the point where you can't ignore how much of it didn't work out and how much of it he moved on before things went wrong. And so the cult that emerged around Blackpool was very Holloway driven. And it was this idea that he'd never really got a fair shake or he'd moved on uh, for before things could kind of, um, come together for him somewhere else or there'd always been a reason for it and now he was finally going to do it and he was going to do it with a a scrappy underdog playing this brilliant football and it blinded us I think to to so many of the other things now if you didn't see all that all you saw was Rentagop this Bristolian with a big mouth who came in like ranting about who are these people uh, and talking and you know taking part for Sir Alex Ferguson when no one had really asked him and really should have been worrying about his own side because even when they were in mid-table, it was never a secure mid-table. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I've I've soured on him over the years. I, I must be honest. I was firmly in the Holloway camp when they came up. And since I've wondered, maybe he was more bluster at the end of the day. Oh, you know, for me, he always was bluster. And that's why I was, you know, never a fan at the time. Uh, I'm just like, what, what are you on about, mate? Shut up. You know, 
you've not done anything, do something. You know, if he'd stayed up for one season, and again, you can, we've talked about, well, you, you lot have talked about, I've listened to <laughs> Blackpool season here and, you know, not much money being around, some proper dodgy owners and stuff like that. However, you know, he didn't get the job done. You know, next season he could have talked. He came up, given it all that, and you failed, mate. Jog on, back down you go. That was always my view on him. It's just like, yeah, you know, it it, it, it didn't appeal to me. And I was rooting for Blackpool so for so strongly that I think I didn't always see some of that. And it does mm. feel slightly harsh because coming up with Blackpool is a huge achievement and I don't want to write that out. Um, it, it isn't all just about survival when you are dealing with that kind of a minnow. But at the same time, I don't know why I didn't see that up to that point he'd left QPR under a cloud and he'd left Plymouth under a cloud. I don't know why I was excusing that. And now I look back on it and think, OK, so in many ways that was as good as it got. And the Palace thing is a remarkable achievement, but he's got that and the Blackpool spell for the entire CV, really, to show. So 20 years of management experience and and maybe two, three seasons of, of relative success. I think the thing about management, though, certainly in the That's the way game, it is, isn't it? Is that, well, yeah, unless unless you're managing... Chelsea, United, City, um, or you know those yo, or one of those. If if you're a step down, probably you know the elite yo-yo clubs. So your Palaces, your Norwiches, your you know, um, I, I won't be cruel enough to chuck Newcastle in there, but true though, but those those sort of elite yo-yo clubs, Palace, um, at least until latterly. It, you know, unless you're managing those clubs, it's it's difficult. You, you can't really say you can't really judge a manager on um, their cups or their win ratio or whatever else, just because the game is so kind of imbalanced at at, at that level. So it, it, you kind of have to look at the intangibles a little bit, a little bit more. Um, because you know, you think about it, like when the Premier League first started in 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 ninety two ninety three you know, with all these kind of, basically these kind of Bovril-stained English managers like Jim Smith and people like that. And they basically just all had careers, like, you know, meandering around various clubs, kind of doing okay, and moving on to another club where they'd, you know, Mm. do okay. And people were fine with that. And I think it's like, you know, people's expectations of management now are that, you know, you're only a success if you um, transform a club or you know or if you you win something or you get promoted to one of the very top jobs and you know it's like everything else you need the the kind of guys in the middle that are just kind of plugging away doing these mid-table jobs because without them we don't really have football as we know it Mm. i mean i i i I, I do get all that it's just that some managers get the the benefit of that and others don't at the end of the day and i don't know why that is Uh, i don't know why Holloway's success for two or three years and middling at best performances everywhere else gets a pass and someone that that I don't particularly rate as a manager like but with a better CV like Steve McLaren let's say just picking someone at random doesn't get the same luxury I don't I, it's, because it's just, 
I think because Steve McLaren painted himself as a really good man, like as, as an elite manager when he wasn't. Well, McLaren um, got the very top job in English yeah. theoretically, and yeah. and, and made a mess of it. it, you know. Um, so I think probably that's him. I would say like, what I would say is like, fair. is that Holloway is probably judged more against maybe. I mean, I, I don't know who you think of as his peers. Uh, someone like I mean I, I guess the fairest way to judge him would be against the likes of um, Paul Jewell maybe <laughs> Allardyce um, yeah, and, I, he, and, he, and he would fall down against them no doubt about yeah, it yeah but the other thing is I'm not sure that it's necessarily a, a wonderful uh, recommendation to say that yeah he had a season in the top flight and no one gave him another job at that level afterwards you know it's other than a desperate palace. Um, I think, you know, I think what it is, is, is you know, like you say, the cult of Holloway. You know, he, he talked a good game and, you know, that kept, he kept people entertained. And that goes a long way, you know, against other managers who just put their head down, probably did a better job. But, you know, they didn't give the entertainment factor that Holloway did. And I, I think that's why a lot of people will remember him more fondly. There are oh, did, like, will remember him more, you know. For me, it's not fondly, but, you know, it's yeah. certainly more memorable. He certainly liked that's to paint actually... himself as, as a great coach as well. It's, it's That wasn't something linked to, to just Steve McLaren. And, uh, he, Ian Holloway like, talked about how great he was uh, and, like, give coaches masterclasses and things. I suppose there's a parallel there between Blackpool and Holloway in a sense because – you know, we don't necessarily um, love teams that defend that are, are effective all the time in England. We we like the glorious failure that Blackpool was. You know, this attacking football masterclass. I mean, maybe it's too harsh to call them a failure, given they were never meant to be there in the first place. But in terms of Premier League survival, that dying on your on your sword kind of approach to it of of attacking. And we like um, in England, we we say we like characters, and that for better or worse is exactly what Ian Holloway gave us. Well, that's the thing, though, isn't it? It's like it's so corporate now. I think we were saying this earlier on, you know, the, the sort of you you wheel out these 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 managers who are all kind of, you know, perfectly um, turned out and kind of uh, and, and give bland interviews about, you know, this, that and the other. And, and, and it, it does make you yearn for the days of a of a, you know, of a Brian Clough and a um you know, and, and and Alex Ferguson like playing mind games with people, and Kevin Keegan going off the deep end, and and these sorts of things. Um, and Holloway, and I mean, I think you know, also we talked about Nigel Pearson a few weeks ago. You know, Nigel Pearson going about ostriches on in a press conference and like completely losing the plot. That kind of stuff is 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 in a way, if you grew up with the game in the in the eighties, nineties, it's kind of what you miss. Um, and so he's, a, I guess, a reminder of those days. Um, and, you know, in a different way, kind of Big Sam was maybe a little bit the same. So, yeah, I, I think there's a sense to, to the way that Holloway played into what English football managers used to be like. I think that's a, that's a good place as any to, to, to leave it. I mean, the Blackpool are perhaps like Holloway not remembered as much for their football as for the uh, as for the story that that they told over the course of that season um holloway not really remembered for his football but more for his his press conferences um 
there's something a little bit of a shame about that was all I was going to say, because they, they they did give us a lot of entertainment Blackpool that year. That's all I was going to add. Just not for long enough, really. That's it. Um, so we go from a flash in the pan to the Premier League's longest serving manager next week. And if if you've noticed that Maz has been quiet this this last week or so, don't worry. I'm sure he'll have plenty to talk about next week. Well, I've um, been saving it up. <laughs> <laughs> we're going all the way back to 1997-98. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Arsene Wenger's first Premier League triumph. Um, Maz has been planning for this since since week one, so uh, it, I think it will mainly be him. I've been planning for this thing since 1997-1998. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's 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 the end of season finale uh next week it's, it's the last uh, the last episode of the season so uh tune in for that one i think it'll be a real treat uh until then thanks for listening <laughs>